You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the Spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. I'm sure that all of you know what the game charades is, Uh, kind of a party game where you have to guess either a phrase or something by someone uh, just doing motions or actions, uh, no speaking at all. Well, as you get to the Gospel of Luke, it opens with a prophecy about two births, uh, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ. But in one of them, it's going to involve a priest who ends up being relegated to charades and silence, not as a means of entertainment, but actually as a means of rebuke and a sign to himself and others. Uh, So I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And I mentioned earlier that our theme for Advent overall is um, repeat the sounding joy, uh, partly based on the hymn Joy to the World, which is celebrating its 300th anniversary in 2019. But we're going to look at this from the perspective that on this first Sunday, that Advent calls for preparation. Uh, This thought of coming and the coming of Christ uh, involves preparation. 
But in Luke 1, we'll look at this from two perspectives. First, the preparation of the world. And then secondly, the preparation of God's servants. Um, so let's begin with verse 5 and look at this thought of the preparation of the world. Uh, what needed to take place uh, within God's sovereign plan of redemption uh, involving the world and in particular the Roman Empire? So verse 5 simply begins with, In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, it doesn't sound like phenomenal opening words. I mean, it's not like the, the novel, you know, in the best of time. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Kind of, you know, what a line to begin with. This almost sounds quite plain, matter of fact. Um, and yet Luke, by giving us these details, is establishing the credibility of all that's going to follow in the Gospel of Luke. So what is the importance of saying this was the time or the days of Herod, the king of Judea? Well, I think it points to the preparation of the world. In other words, you want to read that line carefully. Herod is king. But you know what? Everybody around him knows, especially the people of Israel. They know he's not a Davidic king. He's not a king in the line of David. In fact, Herod is in Edomite. He, he's a descendant of Esau. So knowing Jewish history, you would know this is not the Davidic king. Uh, he, in fact, is a, a puppet king put there by Rome to help monitor and keep, hopefully, things very peaceful in Judea. So the setting is you have a king, but he's not a Davidic king. He's not the ultimate king that the Old Testament keeps promising will come. Also, we know that during this time frame, it's in the midst of the Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. So there's a period in Roman history, in the Roman Empire, where for 200 years, there is a peace and stability that Rome establishes, generally throughout its empire. Uh, it's a time in which Rome rises to being the capital of the Western world in terms of culturally, architecturally, uh, all of the things we tend sometimes positively to equate with the Roman Empire. But in the midst of that, there's also a crack in the foundation within the Roman Empire. And that is, as is excelling on one side, it is falling apart morally, sexually, and politically. So there's political division in the midst of the Pax Romana. There, there's escalating sexual perversion that Roman historians speak of quite openly and matter-of-factly. Uh, there's division within the classes. The, the wealthy are becoming wealthier and the poor are becoming more and more destitute. And there's great corruption in the priesthood. In other words, people would know that their present high priest is not there because of his godliness, but because he bought the position. So you have all of these elements that speak of why, why this time in history that God will intervene and bring his son into the world. We have a world that on one side looks glorious, 
but inwardly is full of decay and corruption. And you start to realize some of this description sounds an awful lot like our world, the world that we live in. This is all a part of the preparation of the world according to God's sovereign plan. But then go down to verses 8 and 9. And this information about Zechariah being a priest at that time is explained a little bit more when it says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now we have a statement about just the general structure of the priesthood during this particular time in Jewish history. You've got 24 divisions of priests. All those priests will basically have two weeks where they will serve. And not all will get to serve and go into the holy place. Only one is going to get to go into the most holy place one time a year. But out of those 24 divisions, you have a limited amount of time and opportunity where each priest will serve in a unique way. According to historians, at this time in the first century, there were about 18,000 priests in Jerusalem. So what you suddenly realize is this lot falling to Zechariah is not by chance or by fate. You want to read that phrase, the casting of lots, in its Old Testament perspective. It was a means by which God often directed and made known his will. We might think of it sort of, you know, you draw straws, uh, you know, you pick, one of you gets a different color ball. Uh, that was a means that God said, this is how I will direct you. So the fact that Zechariah finds that he is the one who not only will be on duty during this time, but he's also going to be the one priest who will take the offering into the holy place uh, and pray before God on behalf of the people. In other words, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. This will only come once in his life. This is better than winning the lottery if you're a priest. So all of these details fall into place of the preparation of the big picture. That although there's human parts that are moving in this, it's ultimately God's hand who's directing and bringing each piece into place. But then you notice also in Luke chapter 1, verse 10, that during this time in which the priests would go into the holy place, you have the worshipers are gathered together and they're going to be praying outside as the priest goes in. And then you look further at verses 21 and 22, when Zechariah goes in and does not come out as promptly as most priests would, it tells us the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak, so they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. In other words, in the preparing of the scene, you already have God building in witnesses. People who are going to verify the details of what actually happened when Zechariah went in and then came out and was unable verbally to give testimony. 
In fact, there is Jewish instruction by rabbis that when the priest would go into this part of the temple to say his prayers, they were to be prompt and short for fear of creating anxiety in the people if he did not come out quickly. So you see how God prepares this stage, which is confirmed by Paul when he's writing in Galatians 4. He says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman under the law. In the fullness of time, at the precise time. And so I, I had you look at in verse 1 when it says, in the time of Herod. And then if you also look at the end of verse 20, where Gabriel speaks of this promise, he says, which will come true at their proper time. Both those are the same word, but there's two different words you can use in the original languages for time. One is a very broad term, a general term. The other one is very specific. It refers to a decisive moment, like the perfect time. It is that second meaning that is used here in both these words, at the precise time, at the exact time. And so we see God preparing the world for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. But I said there's a second aspect we also need to look at in this narrative, and that is the preparation of God's servant. The world is prepared. All the pieces are in place. What now goes on on a much deeper level here in the preparation of God's servant? And so you notice that verses 5 through 7, Luke does not want us to lose sight that the location of all this happens where? The temple. The place of worship. And now as we look at this, we obviously are confronted first with the preparation of God's servants in terms of the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke tells us something about their character, which evidences that God's favor is on them. His favor is not on them because they are righteous. They are righteous and blameless because God's favor is on them. And so look closely with me at verses 5 through 7, where we're told about this elderly couple. Notice, first of all, in verse 5, they both belong to a priestly line. That in terms of genealogy, of establishing your connections, they both belong to a priestly line. They can both be traced back in different ways to Aaron. This, this is very important detail that Luke wants us to know. Remember in the opening prologue of Luke, verses 1 through 4, Luke says, I'm writing as both a historian. I want to make sure all the facts are correct. And I'm also writing so you know how to defend and explain your faith. So every detail here is vitally important. So we know that they both can be traced back as being descendants of Aaron. Notice in verse 6, it speaks of the fact that they were upright or righteous in the sight of God, and their obedience to his word was blameless. Speaking of their spiritual integrity, their, their faithfulness, 
And we can assume they have been faithful for many, many years, given the fact, as it will tell us, they are both full of years beyond the age of having children, well beyond the age. Notice in verse 7, a little caveat is added to us. They didn't have what we might say the perfect life. They weren't living the American dream because there's something here that's on earth for us. In verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. You want to think about what does that mean in a Jewish context? Here is this godly couple. He's a priest. She's connected to a lineage of priests, but no children. First century Judaism would look at that and say there's, there's some kind of judgment, so, something that this is the reason why God has prevented her and him from having children. In other words, this would be something that would tend to be looked down upon. They have borne this burden for many, many years. It's not the perfect couple, but they're a godly couple. And then you notice what happens in verse 13. Knowing that background about Zechariah, his time and responsibility comes up. He goes in to perform the sacrifice. While he's doing that in verse 13, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Why is that so important? Your prayer has been heard. Well, that sounds exciting, uh, but it causes you to think about what prayer are we talking about? Now, immediately it says your wife Elizabeth will be with child. So it's possible that maybe when he was in again for this time, he prayed about that. The only thing that would be somewhat unusual is as a priest, his primary function would be going in to pray for the redemption of Israel. And I think you could postulate here that maybe what has happened is two prayers have been answered, but at that moment, he had not been praying for a son. In fact, the text seems to imply this was a prayer that maybe many years ago was kind of hung up as, that's not going to happen. In other words, they had prayed about it for many, many years. But now as he was fulfilling his priestly functions, he was praying for the redemption of Israel, for the Messiah to come, for that one who Malachi said was going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah, that those things would fall into place. In other words, the significance that should strike us here is that Zechariah heard for the first time out of anyone in Israel's history for 400 years, God speaking to a prophet, to a priest. There was this absence of that, where the book of Malachi ends where the people are not listening. And God, is, in a sense, is going to ghost them. He says, you, you don't want to listen to my word? Then I won't speak to you. I won't raise up a prophet. So for the first time, this elderly priest Here's the words of Gabriel saying your prayer 
has been answered. What a preparation that needed to take place first in God's servant, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Were those long years of not having a child a part of God's preparation? A part of God's perfect plan, although it was difficult for them? And from an earthly perspective, they had kind of come to the realization physically, emotionally, and spiritually, it's just not going to happen. Haven't you ever been there before in your own life? God says one thing, you don't see it happening. You kind of reach a point, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. But God also was preparing not just the parents of John the Baptist, but you have a description here of this one whom they will carry, that Elizabeth will carry. There's a process where God's preparing that child already. And so look at verses 13 through 17. You have quite a description of the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Notice in the description at the end of verse 13, uh, God picks his name. This is not common practice. Uh, the father would pick the name of the son. And in fact, this surprises the crowds later when John is born. They're all expecting, you know, are we going to see Zachariah Jr.? Are we going to see some other Old Testament name? And he blurts out, John. That's what we're calling him because that's what God has named him. So think of the process here. Even John's name, which means God is gracious, was not chosen by his parents. It was chosen by God. But then you look a little further in the description. His birth is going to be the source of joy to many. Uh, this will be part of the fulfillment of God's promise in Malachi, one who will come before the Messiah. You also have mentioned that he's going to be great in the sight of God. Uh, Luke is very careful as he opens his gospel with these prophecy of two births and then tells you about both births that he clearly distinguishes, although John the Baptist will be great in the sight of God, Jesus exceeds him because Jesus is the Son of God. John will come to prepare the way, but he is not the way. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the way. But you see God's hand in preparing this one who will come to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. It mentions some of his vows there. He will be in a similar way, maybe like a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, which would speak of one's complete dedication unto God. He'll also be uniquely filled with the Spirit from birth, which you'll see later on in Luke's gospel, the reaction that when Mary shows up to see Elizabeth, the reaction within Elizabeth's womb, but John the Baptist and, and knowing he's in the presence of the one who will carry the Messiah. He's going to go out in the spirit and power of Elijah. You would not need to explain to someone who is Jewish the significance of that phrase. Does Elijah challenge the people to reform and turn to God in the midst of great idolatry 
and sinfulness. John the Baptist, similar setting, is going to come in. And then you have the reference, he's going to turn the hearts of others to God. That's a unique Old Testament phrase for what a prophet does. He, he preaches repentance. He tells people you need to turn away from sin and you need to turn to God. This is what John the Baptist is being prepared for by the Spirit of God even before he enters this world. Now, at this point, it seems like, well, all the preparations are in place. The, the circumstances in the world, in the world stage is all in place. You have Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're in place. You have John the Baptist, who's going to be born soon. He's in place. But there's one other work that needs to still be done. And it's in the work within the realm of the heart of Zechariah. This godly man still needs his own heart prepared for this. And so you see something that catches us off guard in verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. What is Zechariah really saying here? And how is this different from Mary's response when the angel Gabriel goes to her and she says, how can this be? I, I, I don't know a man. Well, there clearly is a big difference. Mary's response is not met by any kind of chastisement or rebuke. Because I think what you see in Mary's response is she's just saying, how is this going to happen? Whereas Zachariah is saying, can you do this? Can, can this really happen? And notice there's no debate on the second part. I'm an old man and my wife is beyond years. Notice the angel Gabriel doesn't respond and say, well, you got to understand, you know, the, the, the 75 is now the new 30. No, he is old and he is beyond years. And Elizabeth is old and she's beyond years. The problem is Zechariah missed something. In his heart, as godly as he is, there's an element of unbelief and lack of trust here in God's promise. How could a priest not make the connection between God's word and God's promise here? Because if you read what he said, that comes off the lips of Abraham. He should have known. What did God do with Abraham? Think of other miraculous births. Isaac, Samson, Samuel. Zechariah knew those stories. But sadly, like some of us, there was a disconnect in saying, you know what? That tells me what God promises, he will always fulfill. You could even add to that, Zechariah would have known the last time the angel Gabriel appears is the one time in the Old Testament where he appears to Daniel. Daniel, living in the Babylonian captivity, has little to rejoice in outwardly. The angel Gabriel appears and explains to him a vision about the future. 
Here's Zechariah in a much better setting and stage. And yet he does not connect that this message will happen just as God's prophecy explained to Daniel will come true in every way. As a means of both gentle rebuke, but also, oddly enough, as a sign to Zechariah and all those people, worshipers, waiting for him to come out of the temple, he will not be able to speak, nor the text seems to imply, not only will he not be able to speak, he will not be able to hear until the birth of this child. In that vacuum of silence, what do you think will be going through Zachariah's mind and heart over those months? I think his heart was being prepared. I believe he constantly was going over, why did I question this? Maybe going back to the Old Testament, reading those accounts again, saying, I, I, I see it now. I, I can't wait that, that when I can speak of this and tell others about the answer to God's promise made long ago. Advent is all about preparation. It calls us to have our hearts prepared, to meet God in a new way, to connect again. If God has promised something, he will fulfill it in his timing, not ours. And therefore, the first Sunday of Advent is also the perfect occasion for coming before the Lord and the Lord's Supper. It's meant to be a time of preparation, to examine your heart, to make sure that the reality of who Christ is isn't just stories and narratives that you can repeat by memory, but they're true events that continue to shape and affect your life in my life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how we too need our hearts continually softened by your Holy Spirit. For we have many times that we disconnect the Word of God from the actions and attitudes in our lives. But Lord, may this powerful reminder from the opening words of the Gospel of Luke challenge us as we come to the Lord's Supper to examine ourselves by your grace and by your mercy. May you cause us to be greater in holiness and reflecting Christ, more humble, in our response to Christ, and Lord, more joyful in what is ours in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.